Today, we are going to talk about suicide and suicide prevention. I would just warn our audience that we are going to discuss items which may be very personal to you and might provoke anxiety. Uh, we don't want to superficially cover this topic. It's a very profound topic. Hence, uh, we've got an, one of the world's experts in this area to talk about something that would be very meaningful to all of us. This is uh, Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic is of prime importance. We're going to talk about suicide and the challenges in suicide prevention. Everybody likes to talk about prevention of diseases, and we've heard about it all throughout. But joining us today is a very special guest, Dr. Michael Bostwick from the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Bostwick is a professor of psychiatry and director of the Medical School Education in Psychiatry. He's also the senior associate dean for admissions of the Mayo Medical School. He's a national and international expert in the area of research in exactly the topic that we are going to discuss today on suicide and challenges in suicide prevention. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Boswick. Glad to be here. So one of your papers looked at the use of medical care in the year before death by 84 individuals, all of whom died by suicide. Can you tell us more about the study? I'd be happy to. The medical literature not just the psychiatric literature, says frequently that people who kill themselves go to the doctor in the year before death. And the implication of that is that doctors should be able to detect these people and get them help so that they won't kill themselves. So we were lo- wanted to look at that and actually track what happened to 86 people who died by suicide. Uh, we had three controls for every case. So we learned that there was no difference between the people who died by suicide and the people who didn't in terms of going to the doctor. Meaning that in the US, we go to the doctor no matter whether we're gonna die by suicide or not. What we did find is that people who died by suicide did go to the doctor more often, but it turned out that less than half of them were actually asked by the doctor whether they were suicidal. Not that many of them volunteered that they were, and none of them did so in the final appointment before death. So this really raises a question. First of all, we're not doing enough screening, but even if we were, if people who are going to die by suicide don't tell us, then how can that possibly be an effective way of preventing suicide. That's a very provocating, but very evidence-based information. And so based on your study and what's there in the popular press, can suicide really be prevented, yes or no? Well, I'm going to have it both ways and say yes and no. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that. What I mean by no is that if individuals who kill themselves don't tell us, then how can we possibly know that they're going to die? What I mean by yes is that there are many things that contribute to suicidal states. And if we treat those things, we will presumably reduce the risk of suicide, although we may not know it because people don't tell us. 
I have to say that as a clinician, one of the really rewarding things is when someone comes back several years later and says, oh, you saved my life, but I couldn't have said it at the time or known it at the time that I was saving their life. I was just treating them for things that were making them feel awful. It all comes to a personal decision which somebody has made up if they want to live or not live at all, and it's so hard to intervene. But let's take for this podcast and for our audience that yes, uh, we are physicians, we can have foresight, that we can find something to hang on to. Can you explain the concept of what is a suicide crisis? What are the components of it? And what should we look for? Yes, I'm building upon the work of Dr. Schneidman, who was born about 100 years ago and died only recently. And he really came up with a three-component cube, really, for components of a suicide crisis. The first was risk factors, things like being Caucasian or being male or being elderly or being widowed or being an alcoholic. The trouble with risk factors is that these are all common things so that I could go and show you a hundred old white men who drink and don't have a partner and I couldn't tell you which one of them was going to die. Although I could tell you that compared to young African-American men who are partnered and don't use drugs, that they're at much higher risk. It's not very useful clinically. The second component is what's happening right now for the patient. Now, this is standard reasoning, but what is causing the crisis? What is causing them to be so distressed? This, I like to think about as narrative, the story, what's going on in that person's life. Depending on how that makes them feel, which is the third component, the mental status, their degree of agitation, their degree of distress, you can really get at a sense of what a crisis looks like. Now, one thing we need to keep in mind is that these days to get mental health care, you often have to be suicidal, but that can mean many things. And I think our task is to break it down. And one of them is to say, well, what's going on? And the other is to intervene in some way to reduce the level of distress. Often it can be medication, even just a conversation sometimes can cause a person to be no longer so distressed that they want to die. So being a clinician, sometimes I'm asked to say that, oh, you're searching for a needle in the haystack. I mean, you mentioned about all the risk factors, so that's the haystack, yeah. and you have, of that, you're finding the needle. And then you have to find it out which haystack to look for. Is it possible that we don't want to talk about this? I mean, it's something intrinsic that even within families, people are quiet. Is it some kind of a communication strategy that we need to expand, not only physicians, but other people uh, the family, uh, maybe a janitor who's probably in the bathroom, kind of you know cleaning up and seeing somebody who's distressed, to try to identify some of these things more than the risk factor, warning signs or mental status. There's so many people agitated, but agitation is such a common thing. And from there to find out who is suicidal and who is not, to connect the dots. I actually think that agitation is something we should respond to no matter what. If we see a person in distress, it's not about suicide. It's about the fact that they're agitated, they're unhappy, they're upset. And I'd also don't think that it takes a medical school and a psychiatry residency to say, what's going on? How can I help? So it really starts with simply being open 
to talking to people, to inquiring. There is a myth that somehow if you inquire, people will be more likely to harm themselves. But I think exactly the opposite is true, that if you engage them, they'll be more likely to tell you they want help, tell you they need help, ask for help. I think there is a subset of, of people who will never ask for help and we can't reach them. We can't do anything for them. But if people are visibly agitated, whether they be family or friends or in the bathroom with the janitor or a patient in my office, I'm going to ask. And one thing that I've learned is that if I'm thinking about that, any doctor should know this. If I'm thinking maybe this patient's suicidal, then I'd really better put it out there because I'm thinking it, I'm feeling it. It's information. It's as much information in my mind as taking up a stethoscope and examining the heart and listening to the sounds. If you're sitting in the presence of a patient and you're getting a sense from the, how they make you feel that they're going to do something drastic, then you better ask about it. We have often heard about this term, agency of a person, especially in the societal literature, especially it's important of somebody who kills himself. Can you explain what this term means? It's very often used in psychiatry, but not very evident in other uh, literature. Well, you know, it, it may not be used that much in psychiatry either, because one of the things that I think that medicine is criticized for is being paternalistic, the doctor taking over. But self-agency or self-determination is the notion that an individual has a right to decide their own fate. Now, I, I should explain where this idea relative to suicide came from for me. I lost a brother when I was a teenager and he was a teenager as well to suicide. And our mother spent the next several years looking for an explanation. And many of the things she was looking for were explanations that would somehow allow her to blame herself or to take responsibility for my brother's death. And ultimately, there was no explanation because he left no record or information, just a lot of potential clues. And because he was dead, he couldn't confirm or deny the clues. So the way that I come to, came to think of that was really, I had to give him the right to have done what he did. Now, that does not mean that I agree with this choice. It do, does not mean that he was even necessarily in his right mind when he did it. But if he gave me no clue, or if there was no clear indication from him that this was going to happen, then I don't see how I can take responsibility for that death. I would extend this to physicians or health systems that try to completely prevent suicide. If the individuals in question are not making their wishes or plans known in any way, how can I possibly tease it out? And if you go back to the first study I told you about, people at their final appointments before they died, the vast majority of them did not give any clue. Now, this does suggest that in many cases, suicide is an impulsive choice, meaning a temporary decision with permanent consequences to something that changes. But that's kind of where my thinking is coming from. I like the term agency because typically in medicine, we do use what is called the principal agent relationship, which means the patient is the principal and I, they hire me as an agent of the patient to do what's best for the patient. So very often as a doctor, I need to bring all the resources as an agent to serve not my interest, but the patient's interest. But that leads me to the second paper, which you showed that a majority of individuals who committed suicide 
had not had a medical contact before they killed themselves. Can you elaborate on that study? Uh, yes. First of all, though, I want to take a little exception with your idea of the doctor being the principal agent. I think it may be helpful to think of a collaborative model in which both the doctor and the patient are agents and which both of them have uh, principal investments in the encounter. It's different from a more traditional view where the doctor takes over and the patient gives their body and their soul to the doctor. But this is more interactive, more collaborative. And I think it profits us well to think about that as a possibility. What we were interested in here was that the most robust risk factor for suicide is believed to be a previous suicide attempt. In Olmstead County, we were able to put together a sample of almost 1,500 people who had made an initial suicide attempt, the first suicide attempt that came to medical attention. And what we did that really had not ever been done before was we counted all the people who went to the coroner rather than the emergency department after they made their suicide attempt. This is a group of people who are pretty much just not in the literature because they're already dead. You know, it's a bit like the man who looks for the lost item under the streetlight because that's where the light is. But all the bodies, it turns out, may not be under the streetlight. So what we found in our study was that of those 1,500 people making their first attempt, coming to medical attention, 81 or more than 5% did eventually die, including one in 11 men, which is pretty horrifying, really. But of those 81, 48 died on the first attempt, meaning about 60% went straight to the coroner. We never had a chance to talk with them, and they had no significant mental health history, so it came out of the blue. And what was even more horrifying was that 73% of them, basically three and four, used guns. So for an odds ratio, if you used a gun of 140 to over all other methods. So there were a couple of things that came out of this, several really. One of them was that more than half the people who die by suicide are doing it before they ever come in contact with anybody in the medical or mental health profession. Secondly, that it's especially high for men and it is even worse if a man, or a woman for that matter, uses a violent method, most notably a gun. A further finding was that of the 33 who survived, 80% of them died within a year of that first attempt. This means we have to change things before in our communities rather than in our hospitals or in our clinics. And one of them, obviously, we have to change is methods that might be used impulsively that have permanent consequences notably firearms. Did your group try to look at the socioeconomic status of these patients? I mean, were they homeless or were they employed, unemployed? Did it make any difference? We did not specifically look at that. We were mostly just grappling with the enormity of people dying on their first attempt. What kind of messaging should we have? What can we do to try to prevent this? At what level should it start? Should it start at high school or primary school or where should these screening and talking should happen? One of the paradoxes, there are many paradoxes of suicide, is that while it's extremely difficult to predict who will do it in a population, any individual death is a nightmare. And a nightmare that actually affects a community of people, not just the family, not just the friends, but the whole community. We talked a little bit earlier about this idea that if you sense that a person might be suicidal, then in my opinion, you're obligated to ask no matter who you are. 
And there is a way of asking. It's sort of in the Columbia tool for suicide assessment, but it's something that's been around for a long time, which is sort of a hierarchy of asking questions. So it might go like this, Dr. Ghosh, have you ever wished that you just wouldn't wake up in the morning? Have you ever wished you just weren't alive? And if you say yes, then I might say, well, tell me, have you ever thought of doing anything active to end your life? And you might say, no, 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 I just wish the Lord would take me or whatever. And you said, well, yes, I have actually had some active thoughts. And I'd say, well, tell me about that. What have you thought about doing? And you say, well, I thought that on a really bad day that I might want to shoot myself. And I say, oh, okay, well, do you have access to a gun? And you might say yes or no. And if you say yes, and I'd say, well, do you have any intent of actually using it? Now, what I've managed to do is to follow the clue, gain information, and then maybe gotten a sense of how much risk you're at right now. And then I can do everything from put you in the hospital if I'm a doctor to send you to the emergency room or call the police. There are any number of things I can do. But also, and this is why I'm really quite hopeful, the way that we will measure suicide prevention, I believe, is not by looking to stop suicides, but by looking to do whatever we can to stop things that contribute to suicidal states. So I think we would agree that we need to treat depression better. We need to treat anxiety better. We need to treat substance abuse better. We need to treat broken homes better. We need to treat people who are for example, in the past year, unable to make their bills are, are despairing because they don't have the things that they need who are socially isolated. Those are all things we know how to do something about. But what I think often we don't want to hear is that what we have to do is put tremendous resources into mental health in order to have in the population over time show reduced numbers of suicides. We'd like a quick fix, like what can we do to stop a death? Well, I'm saying if you buy my idea of a crisis, that if you come to me in crisis, what I'm gonna do is treat your depression, manage your anxiety, try to get some social services in place for you, confront you about your addiction. And all those things, even just telling your story may lead to a reduction in risk. So I'm basically saying that everything that I do as a psychiatrist and that you do as a physician is potentially helping to prevent suicide, but it won't be because we just go about preventing suicide. We need to think about the things that make suicidal states. In other words, it's the epiphenomenon. It's not the thing itself. The thing itself are all these human miseries that the living have, not the fact that someone has died. If you had all the money in the world, what kind of resources would we need dollar wise residency yeah. wise or physician wise nursing wise just a rough guess i think it, it starts from an idea about what our society should be in the the pandemic a governor was cited as saying well i think a few a bunch of old people dying is okay if we keep the businesses open because businesses are more important than old people now if you use that kind of reasoning i don't agree with it by the way Whenever we make decisions about what we're going to put into healthcare, what we're going to put into social determinants of health, we're making a decision according to that calculus. So I think that if we believe that suicides are deaths of despair, and we look at the things that contribute to despair, then we've got a decision to make. Are we willing to have a, you know, a few people here and there killing themselves because we don't want to have a clinic to get their depression treated? Are we willing to have you know, a few people die because we don't want to provide what they need to have a viable life?
I think that's the level at which we ask questions. In a very wealthy country, we can make all kinds of decisions about what we want to do with our money. I mean, recently in Texas, we see that the power grid collapses because the decisions were made to make a lot of money and have a free market economy. Well, okay, whether we agree with that or not, there are consequences for those choices. And I would argue that we can dither about suicide prevention, but if we don't look at the things that lead to despair and don't make decisions to work with those, however expensive they are, we're not really addressing the problem. And again, I get your point that, well, what is the number? I don't think there is an absolute number, because, but there is a degree to which we believe people ought to have certain basic medical rights. And I would count mental health no different than physical health in terms of places we have to decide about where we're going to put our resources. And I agree. I mean, we need to reduce the stigma, at least from my medical license. When I have to renew, I have to keep saying, have I been treated for depression and uh, anxiety and things like that? And this kind of personal declaring these things in official documents and shame and blame mm. um, makes somebody who is verging at the tethering about that, make it more of a permanent rather than uh, surviving a suicide. It's, it's better off not disclosing it. I don't think that's what they're thinking. So how much do we need to openly talk about what is our personal health? There's a terrible double standard too, because for example, would I ask somebody applying for a license, well, tell me how your prostate's doing or what's up with your lungs and then give you or deny you a license based on that. It also plays to the notion that mental health conditions are somehow not treatable which they eminently are, and are somehow not survivable, which they eminently are. And there's plenty of evidence to support that. But as you point out, plenty of stigma that we apply to one set of conditions, but not another. When somebody tells how painful their life journey has been till now, I have made this mistake, and I hear this all the time. We paint this rosy picture that, oh, you'll become this, don't worry, things will go, the sun always rises and all that, indicating to them that we have not listened to them, indicating to them that this rosy picture is what I would expect of myself. And if you mention those rosy picture, uh, my life would be a lot better, not thinking what the patient is going through. I find those kind of statements sometimes are very harmful and patients don't mm -hmm. take it well. Uh, what's your opinion on that as, a, as an expert in this area? Well, I think we should do exactly the opposite. I gave the example of my mother searching around for an explanation. And finally, what I was able to finally say to her was, mom, we just have to acknowledge how painful it is and figure out how we're going to endure it. I've learned that patients are often not wanting to be told that it's all gonna go away, that it's all gonna be easy. What they want to be told is that on the one hand, you'll be there with them, and on the other hand, that we'll do what we can to find ways to make it not so hard. Because life is hard. It's hard to live. And I think what folks are often looking for is simply an endorsement of the reality that they have and the offer from a friendly companion, a friend on the journey, that they'll do what they can to try to help. And the point that I've tried to make in various ways is that there are many ways we can help despairing people. And one of them is simply to acknowledge that their despair is in fact reality-based. But then what are we gonna do about it? So it doesn't stop there. You don't just say, well, oh, you poor wretch. You say, well, yeah, this is a very difficult thing you're in and we gotta figure out some way to make it not so hard to be you right now.
Some people are very relieved the moment they have decided to take their own life. We find this conversation. I had no clue that this was in his mind and next day they're gone. Mm. So should we be bothered about this kind of an exuberant uh, behavior on individuals whom we know have depression or have gone through some despair? Well, we certainly can ask about it. And that is anecdotally noticed. But I would also tell you that I've made a small business of videotaping people the day after they've survived their suicide attempt. And they say, I can't believe what I was thinking. I can't imagine I did what I did. I just can't believe that this happened to me. Let's get on with the business of living since I'm still here. So we can cut it both ways. It might even be a comfort if a person, you know, had this uh, flight into health the day before they died, that they really, back to that agency idea, they knew what they were doing. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to like it. But what I'm telling you is that in my experience, I get to see people who have made the attempts and are saying, I can't believe it. I, I'm so glad to still have an opportunity to live on. And these are people who have shot themselves and survived. So um, they've made very serious attempts. And the next day they're saying, even with their grievous in injuries, I'm just so fortunate to be still here. Before we wrap up this wonderful session, I know we can go twice the length. Is there something you would like to say to our doctors and care team? What kind of message you would like to have, Dr. Boswick? Well, I think it's important that we actively listen. And I think it's important that we show up as ourselves meaning that what I think makes the most difference for a person in despair is that another person, whether it be a doctor or a family member or a social worker, recognizes that despair, acknowledges it, and offers to try to help to reduce it. You know, that's very basic, but I think sometimes in a very fancy medical world, in a very complex world with alliance and appointments and all this, we forget that very basic thing, which was, tell me what's going on, and let's see if we can figure out a way to help. I thank you very much for your time, Dr. Boswick. Um, we'll end the session today. This was a profound session for me. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe and stay healthy. And we'll see you back next week.